So tonight, my message is titled, Faith That Works. We'll be in Hebrews 11, also Acts chapter 17, John 20, and uh, in a couple other places. But if you have those ready, the Hebrews 11, Acts 17, and John 20, you should be able to fall around with most of it. You have probably heard uh, uh, this story. A man fell off a cliff, but he managed to grab a limb on the way down, and the following conversation ensued. Is anyone up there? I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe me? Yes, Lord, I believe. But I can't hang on much longer. That's all right. If you really believe, if you have faith, you have nothing to worry about. I will save you. Just let go of the branch. Several moments of silence followed. And then, is anyone else up there? Faith. What is it? You see, there are several opinions on faith. There are descriptions of faith. There are even different types of faith. You can have great faith. You can have little faith. There is weak faith. There is strong faith. There is strong in the faith. There is faith in God, faith in faith, faith in the government. There is blind faith, which probably belongs to those who have faith in the government. There is Faith Hill. There's a rock group called Faith No More. I found a website called Reasonable Faith. It was a very reasonable website. Which made me wonder, is there a page called Unreasonable Faith? There is. I found it. It's an atheist website. I found it very unreasonable. There is faith we can practice. There is faith that is not practiced. There is stuff done in good faith. There is stuff that is done in bad faith. There, is, there are faith-based initiatives. There are unfaithfully-based initiatives. We are told to walk by faith. There is the word of faith. There is even the absence of faith. There is faithfulness. There is faithlessness. There is the step of faith. There is the leap of faith. There is defense of the faith. There is active faith. There is living faith. There is living in faith. There is faith that can make you well. There is faith that can be denied. There is the faith of the mustard seed, the faith of a nation. There is faith that can remove mountains. There is faith delivered once to all the saints. There is faith in his name. There is faith to be obedient to. Faith can be full of. Faith that can be turned away from. Faith to continue in. There is the door of faith, purifying faith, sanctifying faith. Faith that is spoken of. Faith that you can grow in. Faith that can fail. Saving faith, losing the faith. There is even the possibility that Jesus, when he returns, will not find faith on the earth. Each of these phrases brings thoughts to our mind. Imagery, ideas, uh, concepts, and no doubt you've heard many, if not all, of these expressions. Faith is prevalent in our society. It is steeped in our culture, and yet the world is dying for the lack of faith. Often our very neighbors and friends lack knowledge of the faith because of our neglect to share it with them. Is it because we are lacking or weak or because we have struggles with our own faith? Are we disobedient or doubting? And of course some of us are full of it. Faith, I mean. What we need is faith that is working, growing, moving us, maturing us, faith 
that works. With all these options and opinions and descriptions, what really is faith? What is faith that is alive and worthy of being called Christian faith? In the book of Hebrews, the author, I believe it's Paul, towards the end of chapter 10 writes these words. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. This also occurs in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and in Galatians 3.11. They all quote Habakkuk 2, chapter 2, verse 4. And I think it is more than a coincidence that those three Testament letters repeat that verse. The just shall live by faith. In Romans we read about how we are justified or made just. The just. In Galatians we're taught how to live or how we shall live. And Hebrews were taught about faith. The just, Romans, shall live, Galatians, by faith, Hebrews. So tonight I want to tackle faith. I want to give faith handles for you so as you leave tonight you can carry the understanding with you. I'm going to focus on a few, the first few verses of chapter 11 in Hebrews. And Uh, I must begin by warning that because this chapter is so famous and the definition of faith so familiar, that we're in danger of becoming numb to what God says in this famous chapter. So let's dig in and see if we can get a fresh look at this historic and well-known verse or section of Scripture. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, and as you turn there, I want you to know uh, up front that there are five points. This is a five-point sermon. I believe in taking notes. I understand how important it is and how the brain works. And by taking notes, you put it into your short-term memory. And if you review your notes, you know, a week, a month, a year from now, it pushes it into long-term memory, and that's how we actually learn things. That's not my first point, by the way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the first thing we have is the definition of the word f- faith. So my first point is called the definition of faith, or faith defined. I, I remember reading this passage as a young Christian, and while I was struck by the beauty and the poetic structure, uh, uh, how wonderful that verse kind of rolls off the tongue, the meaning was entirely lost to me. I was embarrassed because I was raised in an intellectual household. And, you know, I've been blessed uh, with a sharp mind. And I was embarrassed that I didn't understand the first verse on the most famous chapter on faith. And I call myself a Christian. However, later I found out that not many of my friends, my Christian friends, could explain it either. So I felt better but still ignorant. And maybe that's you tonight. This simple phrase, this tautology, you know, something repeated twice. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This simple phrase, um, if it baffles you, let's break it down. Make it a little bit clearer. So the, the first thing is the word faith is the translation of the Greek word pistis. And pistis is not just simple trust or belief. It means something deeper than that. This word is used as a technical rhetorical term for forensic proof. Something deep, an understanding. 
It's used over 240 times in the New Testament. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 17 real quick, we'll look at one of these verses just to see it used in another place. It's uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. And it says, Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Didn't hear the word faith, did you? Here the word pistis is translated assurance. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So you can see it doesn't mean just faith. This is something that is sure. He's given us assurance. Raising from the dead is pretty strong proof, a pretty strong reason to believe. I have heard many definitions of faith, and this is invariably where we get into the term a leap of faith. Faith, to me, is not a leap into the unknown. It is not blind. It is assurance. It is following a pattern established by trust, by history, by a track record. When we grow up, we're taught various forms of trust. Our parents tell us to jump into their arms from some precarious perch, like a top of a counter or from a tree limb or something, and we willingly do this because we trust them. We have pistis in them. They establish a pattern of trust. They prove themselves over and over again that they're worthy of this. We sleep well at night because we know that they will protect us. We listen to their advice because of the pattern of their teaching in their life that they live in front of us. That's pistis. I know very little about the soundness of aerodynamics or, uh, of a jet. I'm not an expert in lift or in thrust-to-weight ratios. But several times in my life, I have gotten onto a plane and put my faith in these laws that I don't understand, that I can't explain. And each time I do... I get to the destination that I'm going to, and it increases my faith in taking another plane trip. I have not yet gotten on a plane with a destination of California and ended up in Cincinnati. Each, this faith strengthens based on a pattern. The pattern increases trust, and every time I ex- exercise this trust, and it has a successful outcome, and increases my faith. It can increase to the point where it's almost a fact. It's a foregone conclusion. It becomes substance. Almost tangible. Hence the metaphor, substance of things hoped for. I know it's going to happen. Evidence of things not yet seen. I'm sure that it will happen that I can almost see them. And I point out here that faith comes first, then sight. If you have sight, you don't need faith. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Uh, I want to... Look at something, an interaction with Jesus and the disciples just after he, the resurrection. In uh, verse 24, uh, John 20, verse 24, we read, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. 
Let me pause there for a second. Where was Thomas? Should have been in fellowship. Should have been there the first time. Leads to a question. What do you miss when you're out of fellowship, where you should be, where the believers are gathered? You miss Jesus. You miss what the Lord is doing in his followers. Going on here. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in, into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside with Thomas with them. And Jesus came and the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Praise the Lord. He sees Jesus. All is well. He believed by sight. But notice what Jesus says next. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Of course, that is us. We who have not seen but believe. You see, blessed is he who believes without having to see, without the evidence of sight or touch, but following the pattern, following the knowledge, following the record. We do not walk by sight. Sight does not take faith. And what I would like to point out as well in passing, that notice Jesus is quoting Thomas. I find that interesting. Jesus was listening. He heard Thomas's lack of faith. I wonder if that's why he appeared a second time. But he still came to Thomas and strengthened him. So the first point we see here is the definition of faith. Faith defined. Going on, verse 2. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. So the second thing we see is they used it. They did something with it. They exercised it. They acted on it. So my second point here is faith requires action. We have faith defined, and then faith requires action. Faith is not just a mental conviction. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. For faith to be valid, it requires action. In uh, verse 4, we read, by faith, Abel offered. In verse 7, Noah prepared. In verse 8, Abraham obeyed. In James we read that faith devoid of works, devoid of action, is dead. Remember from the scripture reading as we began, if one of you says, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but do not give them, do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? If you do not act, what profit is your faith? And then a verse later, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now here's a surprise for you. That word there, the demons believe, pistis. The demons believe in Jesus. I would argue that the demons probably believe more firmly in Jesus than we might 
and they tremble. What's the difference? They can't act. They cannot work on your behalf or on God's behalf. They have no repentance. It's not offered to them. You see, they have faith. They have trust that God is who he is. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. And he's not with them. And they are not putting their trust in him. They have opposed him. So you see, to say that you have faith, you trust, but do not act is really to exercise either disobedience or doubt, even apathy. To not care enough to do anything is really disobedience. So we're faced with options, like being called out of the boat to walk on the water. We have two choices. We can stay in the boat, or we can take a step of faith and trust. Stay in the boat, disobedience, step out in faith, proving that we lead, faith that leads to action based on what we believe. Now this leads in many directions and time won't permit me to travel down this path, Um, but a couple of quick thoughts. What in your life, what pistis does your schedule reflect? What faith does your checkbook reflect? What faith do your relationships, how are they affected by your faith? Or are they? So we have faith defined, faith that requires action. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Understand. Faith is intelligent. By faith we understand. This is the Greek word noeo. To exercise the mind, to comprehend, consider, perceive, think, and understand. That's how it's defined. If I have a pet peeve, it is this. Okay, I have several pet peeves. This is one of them. This is a big one. I I will ask it, I, I will... Put it this way, I'll ask in the form of a question. Why would God give us a brain? Why would he tell us to seek wisdom above all? Why would he tell us to serve him with all our mind and then honor him and serve him and give him our best by faith and then define faith as devoid of intelligence? doesn't follow. This is the faith we call the leap of faith into the great unknown. Take this giant leap of faith. We have no idea what we're doing We're stepping out in the dark. That is not faith. That might be presumption. A philosopher once said, unthinking faith is a curious offering to be made to the creator of the human mind. Some people believe in this kind of faith. Faith that requires a separation from reality. Now, I'm not saying that God requires an IQ test or that Christianity is intellectual. All I'm saying is that it's not anti-intellectual. God created our minds, and it's foolish to think that to please him, he would require us to disregard them, to ignore the mind that he gave us. Carl Sagan said that faith is the belief in the absence of evidence. 
That is the leap of faith into the dark nothingness, absence of any direction. That doesn't sound like Christianity to me. That is faith. That is not faith. That is hopelessness, foolishness. Atheist Richard Dawkins defined it this way. I quote, Merely belief without evidence, a process of active non-thinking, a practice which only degrades our understanding of the natural world by allowing anyone to make a claim about reality that is based solely off their personal thoughts and possibly distorted perceptions, that does not require testing against nature, has no ability to make reliable and consistent predictions, and is not subject to peer review. I'm sorry, but that sounds to me a lot like the definition of evolution and and the description of materialism. In fact, I personally believe it takes a lot more faith to be an evolutionist or an atheist than a Christian. It takes more of a leap of faith, a jump off of the cliff of ignorance to believe in evolution. Christianity seems eminently more understandable and far more reasonable. To believe that a giant explosion created order, or that even though we see no evidence of macroevolution, we have never found a missing link, we have no idea how complex systems like the eye could have evolved. Take, for example, the coagulation of blood. There are some 200 functions, simultaneous properties that evolve coincidentally at the same time so that blood clots but does not block uh, blood flow. It allows blood to flow but also clots so that we don't bleed to death. 200 processes coincidentally and at the same time. Imagine the intermediate steps. Blood that doesn't actually coagulate is not very helpful. Blood that coagulates too quickly is not helpful. What's the evolutionary step for blood? It has to all work or not work. And they did this all without a design, a designer, or a plan. All coincidentally. What about any of the other complex systems of living organisms? The sight, the eye, the digestion, reproduction. None of these questions has ever been answered. Where's the evolutionary explanation for metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly? The Bible describes God making animals after their kind. What do we find alive today in the fossils and in the zoos around the world? Well-defined kinds. We see in the fossil record an explosion of life in one period. Evidence of creation. Not long periods of evolution. We see order in the universe and in the world around us. Evidence of a design and a designer. Is it more or less reasonable in spite of all these gaping holes to believe in evolution or the Big Bang or order out of chaos. I consider myself to have a lot of faith, but I do not have enough faith to believe in evolution. It seems entirely unreasonable, and it sounds more like Dawkins' atheism. Remember that quote, a claim about reality that is based solely off their personal thoughts and possibly distorted perceptions that does not require testing against nature has no ability to make reliable, consistent predictions, and is not subject to peer review. That is the definition of atheism. That's the definition of evolution. If there's a current day leap of faith, it's the evolutionist, the atheist, the materialist scientist. 
who have made that leap, not the Christians. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. With this in mind, let's take a look at the principal event of the New Testament, the resurrection. Jesus died. John was an eyewitness. Roman soldiers pierced his side with a spear. They determined he was dead, and they were the experts in this form of crucifixion. You can read this in John chapter 19, Luke 23, and Mark 15. It was a Roman centurion who witnessed the death of Christ. Again, he was responsible to make sure that criminals, uh, those who were crucified, actually died. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. Pilate checked that Jesus was dead by checking with the centurion before releasing the body to be buried. Mark 15. He was buried. Again, there were eyewitnesses to this. Luke 23 and Matthew 27. The tomb was sealed and guarded to prevent people taking the body. Matthew 27. After three days, the tomb was found empty. Luke 24, Matthew 28, Mark 16. After Um, He rose from the dead. Jesus was seen by his disciples, and he ate and drank with them. Luke 24, John 21, and Acts 10. Jesus managed to walk to Galilee. No mean feat for someone who had a spear thrown into their heart only a few days before. Matthew 28, 7, and 16. Thomas felt the wounds, the nail wounds, and the spear wound. John 20, 27. Jesus appeared to over 500 disciples at one time, most of whom were still living at the time the gospel was written, and their testimony could have been checked. Did you see Jesus? Yeah, he rose from the dead. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Some people have argued that the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus contradict themselves. However, if they were perfect recitations of the same thing, word for word, The police today would throw that as collusion. Different people see different things and record them differently. Same event. That adds to its accuracy, not detracts from it. But let's say for the sake of illustration that each of these things was fabricated. It was made up by the 12. They were able to buy off the guards, who incidentally were all under penalty of death for lying or letting anyone unseal the grave. Let's say they were able to pay off over 500 witnesses to pretend to see Jesus. And let's say they pay off hundreds more to make up all the miracles that Jesus performed. The dead raised were all made up somehow. The prophecies he fulfilled, all of that, of course, in itself would be impossible. But for the sake of argument, they pull it off. The disciples, the early followers of Jesus, pull it off. The most convincing convincing thing to me then is that they all died martyrs' deaths for a lie. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified. Matthew, the tax gatherer, was suffered martyrdom and slain by a halberd in the city of Nadaba. James, the brother of Jesus, died at 94, beaten and stoned by the Jews. Finally, his brains were dashed out with a fuller's club. Matthias, elected to fill the vacant place of Judas, was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew, Peter's brother, on his arrival of Edessa, was taken and crucified on a cross, the two ends of which were transfixed into the ground, hence the term the St. Andrew's Cross. 
Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Peter is crucified upside down because he was said, he was said, I am unworthy to be crucified the way that my master was. Paul was sent two messengers by Nero to tell him of his execution. The two messengers asked Paul to pray for them that they might believe. After they received Christ, the guards led him out to be beheaded. Jude, the brother of James, crucified in Edessa. Bartholomew was at length cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas, martyred by being thrust through with a spear. Luke is believed to have been hanged uh, on an olive tree by the priests in Greece. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain. John, the only disciple not to be killed by martyrdom, was boiled in oil but did not die and was banished to the Isle of Patmos to live out the rest of his life. All these men and thousands of others died for a story that they made up. I don't have enough faith to believe that. There's no way they could pull that off. All of them went to their deaths without denying because they knew it was true. They had seen their risen Lord. That is part of the body of evidence that gives us the strength of our faith. It is intelligent. The part of the body of knowledge we have, the testimony they have to us, they pass it on to us. By faith we know. The faith we have is preceded by evidence, by patterns, by testing, by history, by testimony, by changed lives. And we can use our brains to analyze it and to assess it and to make decisions. Faith is intelligent. So we have the definition of faith. Faith requires action. Faith is intelligent. Faith involves trust. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. Noah trusted God by faith. He had never seen rain, much less a flood. He spent his lifetime building a boat to float on a flood from rain that he had never seen. But he believed God, he trusted God, and so he did it. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He trusted. The essence of faith is trust. Without trust, you do not have faith. I have uh, a favorite illustration Uh, So if I've used this before, please forgive me or indulge me. But when it comes to trust, I have one illustration that I love. And so once a year or so, I get to share it with you. Jean-Francois Gravelette was an amazing phenomenalist. What's a phenomenalist? I'm glad you asked. A phenomenalist is a tightrope walker. He had a full head of hair, blonde hair. He became known as Charles Blondin because of his blonde hair. On June 30th in 1859, he became the first man in history to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 25,000 people came to see him to walk the 1,100 feet on a tiny rope suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls. He worked without a harness or a net, and the slightest slip, he would have fallen and plunged to his death. 
Over several days, he would walk across the falls many times. Once he walked across on stilts. Another time he took a chair and a stove with him and he sat down midway across and cooked an omelet and ate it. Once he pushed a wheelbarrow across, loaded with over 350 pounds of cement. He asked the cheering spectators if they thought he could push a man across sitting in a wheelbarrow. The crowd cheered in approval. Seeing a man cheering loudly, he asked, Sir, do you think I can carry someone safely across the falls? Of course you can. Get in. He did. And Blondin pushed him across the falls successfully. It was a plant. It, it was his manager. He had worked them so long that he knew Blondin could do it. He trusted him. That is putting your faith and trust in something, getting in the wheelbarrow. God is asking us to get in the wheelbarrow. So we have faith defined, action required, intelligence allowed, trust in. And so if you've been following along, my mnemonic device, faith, action, intelligence, trust, the last letter is H. H is for hearing. The fifth and final point is faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10, verse 16, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In verse 4, we have Abel obtained a witness. In verse 7, this is back in Hebrews, uh, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. In verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. Obtained a witness, divinely warned, called. We do not know uh, intuitively how to serve God or to please God. It doesn't come by nature. It doesn't come naturally. We need revelation from God. How does God speak to us? How does he communicate how to live? During a particular time in the life of Jeremiah, false prophets were lying and attributing these lies to the voice of God. God takes his name seriously. He takes his communication to his people seriously. And he was angry about being misrepresented. So he spoke to Jeremiah. This is in Jeremiah 23, verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have a dream, I have a dream. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets to the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God takes his word very seriously. He says his word is like wheat compared to chaff, that's the part of the wheat that is the stem, the stalk, and all that that's ground up and blown away. His word is like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. His word is like fire, like a hammer. It's active. God honors his word. 
It's more important than opinions, than dreams, than experiences. How do we know God can communicate to us accurately? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. He's spoken to us through his Son. He sent prophets, he sent his word, and then he sent his Son. How do we know he can communicate to us accurately? Well, What if he created us, created our minds, created our voices, ears, created language? Then at his very core, at his very being, he is communication. He is called the Word, the Logos. Then he became a man and spoke directly to us, using this language, this communication ability, directly to us. Not through prophets, not through dreams, not through experiences, but face to face, he became a man. John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16. We hear God's Word. We get instruction. He communicates to us through His Word. We read His Bible. The Word of God. It's the story of God. It's the story of the Word of God. Man that became, God that became flesh and dwelt among us. Communicated to us perfectly all that we needed to know. We've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. By the way, it does say here, that means that someone must speak. Romans 10, 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The gospel requires us to talk, to have conversations. That is the means by which God has ordained that we communicate truth that we communicate to others. And by the way, there is this popular phrase we like to use, a picture is worth a thousand words. What is the picture that communicates without ambiguity justice? What about redemption, grace, peace, love? So the problem with pictures is everybody has a different interpretation of them. We need words, phrases to communicate concise ideas. That's why God gave us words. He gave us his word. Even Jesus' death on the cross would be without meaning or context. Lots of people died on crosses. We need a context for that. We need to know that this is God's son. This is the Lamb of God who died who was sinless. See, the picture alone doesn't communicate to us. We need words. I love art. I love pictures. But we need words to communicate complex ideas. So now I have this mnemonic device, faith, the definition. 
Action, intelligence, trust, hearing spells out faith. Not finished yet. Don't pack up yet. I'm going to say something else that is hopefully a little shocking. Faith alone is not enough. Faith alone is not enough. I was having a conversation during lunch with a friend several years ago. This is when I worked out at Disney. This was a long time ago. We were discussing spiritual things, and he was not a Christian. He was eating a potato. We were discussing prayer, and he was questioning the validity of, of, of faith and prayer, and he made this statement. I could just as easily place my faith in this potato, pray to this potato, and then whatever happens, I could ascribe to the holy potato. Isn't that the same as praying to Jesus? So there I was. And before I give my answer, think about that. What would you say? Isn't faith the most important thing? Having faith? Is there any difference between putting our faith in something or anything? See, the most important part of this is not faith. It's the object of our faith. It's who or what we put our faith in. I think we could reread this text in a slightly different manner. One of my music instructors years ago gave me an illustration that has impacted me greatly, and I was taught this in music, but I found it applies to a lot of things. And if you've been to any of my teachings, I use this quite a lot. So again, please indulge me. But the phrase is this. You know, I was playing a particular jazz passage, and I, was, I used to play trumpet, and I, and I was missing the accents and making it sound really square. And he said, Tom, you're putting your emphasis on the wrong syllables. And I got it immediately. Maybe we've become so familiar with this chapter that we have forgotten the key. So I want to read this passage again. I'm going to highlight slightly differently. Chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it elders obtain a good testimony. By faith we understand that the words were framed by the word of God. So that the things which were seen, uh, were not made from things that which were visible. By, Abel, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, being dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. You see, we take this passage and we make faith the point of the passage. And that's true, it's important. But that's not the point. The point is the faith was placed in God. And that's what makes faith useful, valuable. That's what makes faith that works. Faith in a plane can be fatal. Faith in faith can be useless. Faith in man can be futile. Faith only in God who is perfect, gracious, loving, kind, and gentle, but also powerful and all-knowledgeable, everywhere present, he alone is worthy of true and full trust, full faith. Now back to the potato story. So my friend asked me what the difference was, why not pray to the potato? So here's my answer. 
And the Lord gave this to me in the moment, so this is not my great intelligence, but I, th- I thought it applied really well. If that potato spoke to us, lived for three years among us, was blessed by a voice from heaven saying, this is the potato in whom I am well pleased, performed miracles, spoke truths, fulfilled prophecies, raised people from the dead, confounded accusers, lived perfectly, instructed perfectly, challenged by hostile parties, unfailing in everything he did, then prophesied that he would be cut up, mashed, beaten, and then buried, but in three days rose from the dead, completely whole, appeared before dozens, spoke, appeared before hundreds, ascended into heaven before witnesses. If that potato lived, I would bow down and worship it. I would dedicate my life to serving it, and I would lead others to do that, hoping to join that potato in the life to come. But a potato didn't do that. A man, the God-man Jesus Christ did, and that's why I put my faith in him and not your potato. Let me say the obvious. A little faith in God is better than lots of faith in something else. In fact, anything else, especially a potato. Jesus is the object of our faith. He's proven himself worthy, trustworthy. He created the world we live in. He came and lived a blameless life without sin. He served and sacrificed even to the point of dying on the cross for our sin. He overcame death. He rose from the dead because he was God who came in the flesh. He has power over death, power over life, and is worthy of our trust. Faith defined, action necessary, intelligence allowed, trust required, here by his word. And finally, um, let me close with this thought. We have all heard about the armor of God, and, and part of the armor of, God, uh, armor of God is the shield of faith. What we believe protects us against the arguments designed by the devil to defeat us. Recently, my faith, my family's faith, was tested to the limit, far beyond what I could have comprehended or ever hoped for. Our shield held, our faith held, because we had prepared for battle. We have spent a long time studying the Word of God, learning to trust Him, exercising that trust, and learning to trust Him more as He was faithful in the little ways and the other things that we trusted Him in, developing and perfecting our armor, in particular the shield of our faith. When all the doubts came, and they came, when the testing came, when the questions came, we stood and held up our shield, and because we had stood in the dark places with the Lord, and He was faithful. Our faith was made stronger. It was made impenetrable. How was your shield? You know, if you go into battle with a shield and you don't know now that it will stand, what good is it going to do you in the, in the middle of a battle? If your shield has holes in it, there are things in your faith that you haven't worked out that you don't know, that you're not sure about, where do you think the enemy is going to aim? Do you think the enemy who's trying to destroy you is going to be fair? Do you think he's only going to attack you in the areas where you're really strong and you feel really good? He's going to pick at all the weak points, all the places you doubt, all the places where you haven't quite figured this out. The time to prepare for battle is in times of non-conflict. 
when you're being attacked, it's too late to pull your Bible out and pray, Lord, give me something. Now, he may honor that, but you're going to be ineffective in battle. You'll be what we call a casualty. You'll be laying on the battlefield somewhere, and someone who's strong in the faith will be coming to help you out. How is your shield? Put your faith, your hope, and your trust in the only person who, who has proven himself worthy. Jesus Christ, the living son of the living God, the creator of the universe. Because on top of all of that, he loves you and he cares about you. What more could you ask for? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of faith. I thank you for the gift of all of those who have gone before us, who studied your word, who have, who have worked through great theological truths, for the apostles and for the writers of the gospels and the letters, for the Old Testament prophets that, that live through events that I hope I never see, all that you might prepare us to empower us to increase our faith, to increase our knowledge, to increase our understanding to increase ultimately our dependence on you, that we might walk worthy. And I pray, Lord, if there are someone here tonight who is struggling with some area, some, some hole in their shield, that you would send someone, you would send them scriptures, you would send a person to, to help with them with that area, that they might leave here stronger, their shield more fully prepared, ready for the slings and arrows that the enemy is going to send to them because we know his role is to defeat us and your goal is for us to stand. So we ask that now. We pray that you would bless us, give us wisdom and insights to your word, strengthen our faith, encourage us, and we ask all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.